12 minutes it is now before 8 p.m. It's our wrap of the top business stories, and I'm joined on the line to take a look at some of these stories by Nolwantle Mtombeni. She's the founder of Aluwe Elwa Consulting. Nolwantle, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Nolwantle, I want us maybe to start off here with the story of Foshini, uh, and uh, they're looking to reduce some of their Chinese imports, uh, which uh, will effectively give a boost to uh, factories in the Western Cape. Yeah. So Foshini, for a long time, has been the one um, clothing retailer that has the most of their insourcing coming from you know, local operations and having factories set up. If you look at the other competitors, most of them actually mostly do imports, and they had a very small manufacturing group in South Africa. So the fact that they continue on being the, the mm. one retailer that does a lot of interesting is a very good sign that they're actually increasing it as opposed to, you know, standing still and letting others catch up is very, very positive, actually. So it's very good for, you know, the economy, the country, um, and, you know, and their commitment to, to South Africa as well, even despite all the challenges they've had, even from political perspective and economic growth perspective, it's very positive. And, and, and I mean, Nolwajli, when you, when you take a look, I guess, at, uh, you know, the textile manufacturing value chain, I mean, what would be the benefits in the short term for, you know, if Oshini doing this aside from just the lead times? I mean, because many people have suggested that, I guess, many of the East Asian nations uh, have a cost advantage and exercise a cost leadership uh, over the, uh, I guess, entire textile value chain across the world. So it really is, at this point, you know, the only big, you know, fact I'm thinking about is the lead time because, you know, the cost of production are made up even from not just the actual manufacturing itself but actually the cost of the textiles as well is cheaper from being mm. sourced from China as well. So even throughout the value chain, um, China remains very competitive throughout the value chain. That's why so many things are made from there, where it's not just the labor aspect of it that is cheaper but also the actual um, the entire input input part of the production part. So I think that's what it is now. So they probably will have to, you know, you know, you know, kind of, you know, you know, suck up the the higher costs. And but I think they are taking a longer term strategic view um, as to why they're growing here in South Africa. Um, the encouraging mm. thing is that you know I think you know where inflation stands now, um, you know, the cost of production will you know increase by a small amount, which should help them. Um, but I think they're taking a much, much longer strategic view in doing this because on the short, short term, it looks to me as if it's still much, much cheaper to be in, in China in terms of sourcing. Mm. And I also guess, I Nolan, you know, all of this happens at, in, in a context where there's been, you know, some consolidation in the sector. Uh, we saw the Fashini group also, uh, you know, picking up of uh, some of what was left over of uh, the Edcon group. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, do you think that, I guess, that kind of market structure m might allow for more of this kind of production? So, um, I think um, it will help. But, you know, I think I think it will. I think where this is where it will help. So if you look at the quality of the materials that we sourced in, for example, in in places like you know your your your, your Mr. Price and compared to like a high-end retailer, the quality of the fabric is much cheaper and it's much lower quality. So you won't need you know these expensive materials. So I think you can maybe make do with sourcing some of the cheap materials and and increase them in house. So 
depending on the market, obviously, the, 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 the requirements are much less at the end or lower end of the market. Although I still have questions and, you know, maybe uncertainty in terms of, you know, it is a cheaper, you know, quality segment. So the quality of that fabric is much lower. It's low cost. Mm. It's probably cheaper to produce. Um, but, I mean, are you getting it for the cheapest? I'm not sure yet. So in terms of, you know, how they think about it, I'm still very unsure about it. But I think even bringing into, getting into, for example, a jet in the group, what is the benefit of that in terms of the amount of volume of, of, of production is going to be higher? So if you're going to increase your productive capacity here, you want to get that volume coming through. And if you're acquiring a new asset, that means that your productive capacity can increase because now you've made on this new acquisition. Mm-hmm. No longer talking about volumes, uh, you know, serious uh, a group saying that uh, they've seen their letting inquiries, least of all for some of their storage assets, uh, picking up uh, rather significantly. And we know that uh, their storage assets are a critical part of their portfolio. Well, what do you make of this? Uh, a landlord largely focused in Germany, uh, but uh, with uh, some, I guess, South African roots, if I can say that. Yeah. Sirius is, and, you know, they base, they focus the main client base is your SME businesses. So they, you know, mm. the main client base would be your, your office or park. So they've got, you know, office parks without Germany in different regions. And I imagine that in this kind of environment, because, you know, they gave an update that focuses on the, on the time when the pandemic had started, so in the last over the last say six months or so or five, and obviously during that time, you know, people have not been going to work as often. So some of the dynamics that would have played out during that time is that the demand for actual sizing of of, of spaces let out has become less. People are opting for smaller spaces, and if you are mm. downsizing certain space, you will have some storage needs as well. So with that, there's been an increase in demand for storage as people opt for smaller working spaces given um, what the pandemic has forced us to work in a different environment altogether. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when you look at that and you compare it maybe to some of the other, you know, uh, players in that uh, sort of real estate sector, not just, I guess, for uh, in Europe as well, but also here in South Africa, some of the bigger players. I mean, uh, uh, how would, how serious has come out fair compared to some of the other bigger players uh, who are comparable to them? Um, so I'm not sure how they've, you know, I've never studied too much detail in the sector, um, but mm-hmm. I think this is the kind of, it's not going to be unique too serious. Um, you know, the entire world has been affected about how we think about the office environment. Um, I, for one, have not been in the office um, since since March. So, and the need for space is obviously, you know, I think people, the conversations that people are having now, do we need to go into office, especially in financial services, where you, you, everything you need is a laptop, on your laptop. So I think, you know, it's going to be not unique to them, it's going to happen to everyone. And, but I think also different environments will have different requirements. But I think how it's going to play out is going to be different to different people. And I think something that we actually need to start seeing, especially with different regions and different countries, um, experiencing the, the wave, another wave or a second wave or a first wave. So there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of how it is in the, in the short term. Um, but I think longer term, I think we're going to see how this is going to play out. Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, as the economic activity recovers, uh, we're certainly set mm. to see, uh, you know, some of that uh, recovery filtering through into uh, uh, one, I guess, uh, you know, the wholesale retail trade sector, which are the tenants of uh, actors like Sirius mm. and many others. But uh, not only, let's shift our attention to the central bank. Now, we know during March, we certainly saw some, some bother and panic in uh, South African bond markets. 
and uh, we saw the central bank intervening uh, using its own balance sheet to buy up some of uh, the uh, sovereign government bonds uh, just to stabilize the market as uh, the governor once said to us on this platform. It seems now that uh, after a bit of a lull in the last two months or so that some of this bond buying activity has picked up slightly for the month of September. Mm. So what I've been looking through, I mean, I've been, you know, I get to look at different, what different countries and different strategies of different houses think about South Africa as an EM basket play. And for many, many months, you know, we've not been the topic in terms of where foreign investors going going to do the high yield play. And it's been playing out for quite a few months now, where as especially as more negativity comes around the country and we have obviously you've got now the FAA now problems coming in but budget speech, midterm budget speech coming out this month. The appetite for South Africa as part of the EM basket comes mm. down. And I think it's showing through, obviously, in the, in the the kind of liquidity and the volumes going through the bond market. And as much as the, the Reserve Bank would like to step away and allow normal activity to resume that market, I think they are seeing that, you know, it is coming back into, you know, kind of the less liquid environment. And they are probably just doing a temporary measure just to increase liquidity because right now, Given the EM basket, we're actually not a topic for many of the, you know, the different houses that recommend um, investments as far as, you know, high yield so, environment. So, so Naraji, you know, you're suggesting, I guess, on, on the bond buying side of things that uh, we're hmm. certainly not uh, a significant or prioritized consideration on the buy side of things. But, but I, hmm. I mean, what do you make of, of the success, if at all, of um, the bond buying program and getting yields back? Uh, to uh, historical levels. I mean, we saw yields peaking just over 12, 12% or so in March, and uh, one would say maybe historic levels on the 10-year note and uh, other similar type of debt would probably be around 8% or so. So I think you must realize since then, it's not really the same environment to start. We are now downgraded yeah, to junk status. Yeah. So you can't compare. It's comparing two different, it's like apples and oranges. So every time you, you, know, you downgrade in terms of credit, it's premiums that are put into your rate. So what happens is if, you know, there's some negative news, obviously the bonds will spike and because certain premiums have gone up, but they compress over time. So it's not really, you know, it's not as one-sided as that, as that, you know, we yeah, you know, come yeah. down from historical levels. There's many, many dynamics that go into play into that. And where we are now is much better from where we are then. And it's only because certain premiums have gone down because the market overreacts to bad news mm. and then they come back and they pull back down. And it's something we will see over and over again over the next few years. It's going to spike and come back down. I think, you know, and the governors, I mean, the Reserve Bank is not trying to get us back to historical levels of, say, 7% premium. Because realistically, you can't be. If we downgrade it into junk status, it doesn't make sense. Because we should be trading, you know, at elevated levels because we use junk status. Um, I think until we get there, then we can start talking about that. But I think that, yeah, you know, guess, you know that, that's where we're at. <laughs> and I guess, you know, Nolan, if you're not making it to the checkout counter as, uh, you know, South African, I guess, sovereign debt and people aren't even considering you in that emerging market basket for all manner of reasons, it certainly does, uh, I guess, lend some credence to the view that you're raising. Talk to us briefly about what's happening in Lesotho. I mean, I'm quite interested in this idea that uh, I guess, you know, um, people can put out a, a bill and um, subject it to a public participation process where there's a suggestion that social media users, especially those who have a large following, I may have to get a special license in Lesotho. Yes. So you, Ayabong, if you were in Lesotho right now, given that you have more than 100 users following you 
on, you know, Twitter, you would have to, you know, get sort of licensed to post things. That's basically what the government is saying, um, which sounds a bit absurd to me. Um, I'm not sure how implemented. I mean, I don't, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, mm. and you say 100, you know, I mean, I know their population is only 2 million, but even 100, it's still, you know, even in the numbers, doesn't make, even the, the, the spirit of the law, I'm just trying to understand that. But that's what the you know the Lesotho government is trying to get through in terms of you know they're trying to kind of you know regulate online behavior and social media, which I think is very very difficult because obviously there's you know the freedom of speech advantage and you know we've come to live in a world where social media is is is, is, is actually helps in some ways because it lets us to think of gender, you know we get lots of information through social media. And if I'm doing things which are just, you know, providing information to social media, you know, it, it creates a lot of complexity to the situation. So I hope that they are not just, you know, you know, doing a copy and paste and from someone else and trying to do it and really um, can put in, you know, proper laws in place as opposed to just do a blanket approach that if you have more than 100, then you should, you know, uh, yeah, sign up and be yeah. regulated because it's very hard to enforce even as well. I mean, if you have like a million million users on on, on social media and then you're going to try to regulate mm-hmm. everyone that has more than hundred, you don't even have the capacity to even the resources to monitor that. So it's mm-hmm. what's the point? So I think they should really be focusing on important things, and they're probably just wasting their time on this. And I guess no longer you know there's a thin line between data sovereignty trying to protect users uh, from misinformation, from privacy issues online and all manner of other things uh, that have probably given rise to some of these concerns or even justified the actions of the Basutu and even the Tanzanian uh, government, which has uh, probably instituted a similar type of law. Yeah. And I don't think this is How far do you know you've gone down the road when you know it's too much? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this, this is ludicrous. I mean, I think, you know, this is definitely not the line here. And I think, I think, you know, they took one example, which is not good. I think you should look for several examples, see how it is around the world and get a better perspective of how it yes, is. Yes. And I mean, they could even ask us, we're right next door, actually, you know. <laughs> so why don't you look at South African? I mean, we're a bigger country. We've got a very strong online presence and a big social media economy I mean, presence and leadership in our country. And we've got laws governing online behavior and freedom of speech. Mm. And we've got, you know, maybe, you know, you know, there's been court cases around this thing. So there is some sort of guidance. And I think they should, you know, maybe do more work around what can be happening and what's reasonable and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to leave it there. And uh, take a, a brief pause. But thank you very much uh, for uh, taking time out to uh, speak to us this evening. Noranjam Tombeni is the founder of Aloha Consulting, speaking to us uh, this evening here for our business wrap. In the next few minutes or so, we'll have an opportunity uh, to uh, check in with our tech conversations.